I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is our scripture reading this morning, and it's also the text from which I'll be preaching as we finish up this chapter in our 37th week in 1 Corinthians. Uh, this is part 2 of last week's message, Liberty and Love. Uh, part 2 this morning. Um, don't necessarily have to have been present last week to, to get the gist of this message, but it is a part two because we're going to be finishing up Paul's same thought from verses 4 through 8 as we'll consider verses 9 through 13. Liberty and love, part two, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. These are the words of God. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see thee which hast knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. When ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Recently, I heard John MacArthur tell a story about growing up with a father who is an itinerant preacher. John MacArthur spent some time on the West Coast as a boy, and he had a pastor who preached very hard against the sin of smoking. He remembers hearing many sermons about why smoking is a sin, why you shouldn't do it, don't touch a cigarette, this, that, and the other. The church would frequently have fellowships on the beach, and they would have members who would hang out and swim all day, and in the evening they would have a little bonfire, and every time they would sit around the bonfire, their pastor would point to other beachgoers who were smoking, and he would say, don't be like them, don't, don't smoke cigarettes, that's not of God, don't do that. Well, due to his father's ministry, MacArthur also spent a considerable amount of time in the South. And in the South, in the 50s and 60s, many churches had as their chief source of income tobacco farming. MacArthur recalled one preacher who even had a tobacco patch in the backyard of the church parsonage where he lived. And to supplement his pastor's salary, he grew tobacco. And he remembers... One pastor who would come to church and smoke a cigarette and flick it in the bush and go in and preach against mixed bathing. The church in California believed it was a sin to smoke. And the church in the South believed it was a sin for men and women to run around the beach wearing bathing suits. Well, MacArthur told this story because it highlights an important principle about Christian liberty and the conscience that we see right here in 1 Corinthians 8. In both of those instances, both of those activities could be sinful. But when we isolate ourselves in a particular context, it's easy for us to have pet sins that we like to preach against, that we like to be very hard on, because that's where our conscience is, and neglect and forget about or not understand that other believers might have their conscience in a different place. God has given everyone a conscience. It is part of our intrinsic humanity. But we must realize that everyone's conscience is shaped by the experiences of their life and what they have been exposed to. And you ought not assume that your conscience is perfect and infallible and that everyone else's conscience needs to conform to your conscience because you have arrived. Don't think that way. Yet that is exactly what was going on in the Corinthian church. They allowed a knowledge divorced from love to wound the consciences and quench the Christian liberty of their brothers and sisters. Well, we saw the framework of this problem last week in verses 4 through 8. Concerning meat sacrificed to idols, there was a dispute over whether or not it was sinful to partake of the meat. Um, the disagreement was not merely theological, we noted, but it was how that theology is to be practically applied. In verses 4 through 6, we saw the mutual confession and that mutual confession laid out the Christian position on idolatry. 
That Christian position is that idols are nothing and that there's only one true and living God. For the stronger brother, that was enough to justify this guilt-free partaking of the meat. That's how he applied the theology. But for the weaker brother, though he agreed with the theological truth, he was nevertheless unable to partake of the meat without violating his conscience. He agreed with the theology, but he applied it differently. The difference in practice alone is not the problem. Every healthy church will have members who disagree in matters of conscience. Every church. This church is not an exception. The problem arises when church members who have differences seek to impose their conscience on others. Go beyond the clear, explicit edicts of the Word of God, which is our final authority. The stronger brothers would not allow the weaker brothers to abstain peacefully. They wanted to enlighten them. They wanted to bring them along. They wanted to encourage them so that they too would partake of the meat. There's a number of reasons why they might have done that. The text doesn't really say. Perhaps it was because of their own pride. Perhaps it was to soothe their own conviction. Maybe they questioned whether or not it was permissible. Uh, But, you know, if you are doing something questionable and you can talk someone into joining you, you don't feel as bad about doing it anymore. But this is all speculation. The text simply doesn't say. But whatever the question was, it was causing quite the problem in the church. Whatever the reason, it was causing division in the church. And remember, I said to you last week, it's not whether we have differences that determines our Christian maturity. But it's what we do with those differences that shows how mature we are in Christ. So Paul had already laid out this framework for this discussion. In the mutual confession, he stated the theological presupposition that all the Corinthians agreed on in the mindful consideration. I'm giving you the outline last week because it runs into the outline of this week. In the mindful consideration of verse 7, he points out that though they all agree theologically, they don't all apply those truths in the same way. And we learn in that an important principle, and that is this. What God says is supreme to your interpretation of what God says. Do you understand what I just said? (laughs) The the authority is what God said, not what you think He said. Mm -hmm. Theological truths never change because the Bible is perfect, complete, and infallible. But your personal theology and your personal convictions do change Because you are not perfect, complete, and infallible. You are growing. You are developing. And that's not only permissible, that is very good. It's very good. We need to be humble enough to admit that even though the Bible's truth will never change, our understanding of the Bible in certain areas will change as the Lord continues to teach us and illuminate His Word in our hearts. Well, then in the meaningless commendation of verse 8, Paul asserts that the real issue is not whether you eat the meat, because eating the meat doesn't earn you any favor with God anyways. Eat the meat, don't eat the meat. The issue is something much deeper than that. The issue is a lack of love for the brethren that doesn't consider their conscience and thus sins against them. Having laid out the framework in verses 9 through 13, Paul will now explicitly address those who impose their consciences against others. So we pick up in verse 9 of chapter 8. We've already seen three headings to this text, and now we come into the fourth heading, which is the mature caution. Mature caution, beginning in verse 9, where Paul says, but take heed. And we see this but there, so we know that Paul is not beginning a new train of thought, but he's continuing on with what he's already said. And the only reason why we didn't consider this last Sunday is because we didn't want to be here all afternoon. Uh, But he says, but take heed. So in light of what I've told you in verses 4 through 8, take heed. That is the caution. The passage is now transitioning from declared truth to practical application. And really, this is something that we should be mindful of regardless of the sermon, regardless of the topic. Anytime you learn a new theological truth, you should always take heed. 
Take heed that this newfound knowledge does not puff you up in pride. Take heed that you don't use your theology to hurt other believers. <coughs> Take heed, Paul says, lest by any means this liberty of yours. Paul is very precise with his word choice. Uh, he employs a, an expression here that kind of hints of sarcasm when he says, this liberty of yours. You kind of hear Paul saying, well, take heed, you know, this, this liberty that you talk about so much, this liberty that you boast in, well, just, just watch out for that liberty of yours. Paul doesn't deny the fact that it is indeed a liberty. The partaking of meat, sacrificed to idols, can be a lawful Christian right. But when you use your rights to sin against others, then your rights have become wrong. We live in a self-centered culture that idolizes their rights. Idolizes their rights. When I read this passage, you know who the Corinthians sound like to me? And I might get myself in trouble because I don't know where some people stand on this. When I read this passage, have you ever, have you ever seen a video uh, of, of someone doing a constitutional audit on the police? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And you have, these, you have these guys that will go out to the police station strapped with an AR-15 and a sidearm and a camera, and they're filming the precinct, and they're taking pictures of the cars, which, you know, that's their right to do. And then the police officer comes out, and he just says, why are you carrying weapons taking pictures of the precinct? Reasonable question to ask, isn't it? And they say, well, I've got my rights. What's your name and badge number? I'm not going to answer any of your questions. I have a First Amendment right. I have a Second Amendment right. That really gets me going. It really kind of makes my blood boil, to be honest with you. Because number one, you've just made the rest of us who thank God for our First and Second Amendment rights look like total idiots. And number two, your rights don't make it permissible to be a rude, inconsiderate jerk. It's not why you have rights. But the same thing happens in the church with spiritual matters all the time. Whoa, 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 Paul. Don't even talk about eating meat sacrificed to idols. We've got our rights. We've got the right to do this. The problem with that mentality, there's many problems with that mentality. It thinks of yourself first, which is something that the Bible over and over again tells us not to do. Consider others before yourself. Quit running to my rights, my rights, and start thinking of others first. And secondly, it forgets that even your rights are gifts from God. In and of yourself, you have the right to die and go to hell. And that pretty much exhausts your rights. That's what you have the right to do. So when we talk about rights, when we talk about liberty, it's Christian liberty. That means it comes from Christ. He's the one that gives these rights. In and of yourself, you don't have the right to do anything other than what He permits and allows and gives us the liberty to do in Christ. And because God gives you your rights, God has the sovereignty to legislate your rights. And there are legislations and restrictions upon our rights, and love is the greatest restriction upon your rights. Love limits your liberty. So Paul says, but take heed, lest this liberty of yours by any means becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. A stumbling block. You, you cause them to trip up. You cause them to, to fall. You hinder them. Yes, you have your rights. God doesn't care if you eat the meat. But God does care about his other children. And your eating the meat could potentially place a stumbling block in front of them, lead them into temptation and sin, and when you sin against your brother in the exercising of your rights, then your rights have become wrong, and God does care very much about that. God cares very much about that. How might, well, how might this happen? I mean, it's right there in the Word. It's a right. So how could we possibly be sinning or doing something wrong when we exercise a right? It's a good question. 
Well, Paul tells us in verses 10 and 11. Notice in verse 10, he says, For if any man see thee, which has knowledge, that means you have knowledge, so you are a stronger brother, and this knowledge here is not just theological knowledge, but you have the knowledge and then you apply it in a way that justifies your eating of the meat. If any man see thee which hath has knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple. Because you have this right, you exercise it liberally. You go to the temple, which in those days was not merely a place for worship, but it was a social uh, center. And so many legitimate reasons for Christians to be there. I mean, civic and social duties, um, political events, personal events. You know, in, that, in those days, if you had a, a friend who was an unbeliever and they had a birthday party, they would often gather at the temple. There was no community center. There were no public restaurants. They had the temple. So you're not there for a worship service. You're not there to make sacrifices. You're just there to sit at meat and eat a meal. <coughs> you sit at meat, you have a meal publicly out in the open for all to see. The word sit here literally translates reclined. So you're there, you're, you're relaxed, you're enjoying it, you're, you're taking part in the festivities. There's nothing covert about this. Paul says, if you do that, if you exercise your right that way, verse 10, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? There's a lot going on in this phrase. It's a long phrase, it's a long sentence. But basically, Paul is asking this question, to, to, to state it simply. Paul is saying, if your brother sees you doing something that he considers sinful, could that not potentially tempt him into sin? And I think Paul words this, this in a question not to tell us that it necessarily will, and we'll see that as we go on in the text, but just to cause us to think about it. He doesn't say, you, this, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I want you to see that he doesn't say, you must never do anything that your brother might consider to be sinful. Because if he said that, we'd never do anything. Right? But he does tell us to think about it. He does tell us to at least consider our actions. And this applies universally before you do anything, before you, you, you dress is such a controversial issue. Well, here's a simple principle for dress. When you get up in the morning, think of God first, is what I'm going to put on my body, honoring to God, pleasing to God, Think of others second, because they're the ones that are going to have to look at you all day. Then think of yourself. Then think of yourself. And that applies across the board. Quit, quit thinking, me, 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 me. I want to do what I want to do, and I don't care about anybody else, and I don't care about God. Me, 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 me. Quit thinking that way. That's what Paul was trying to get the Corinthians to do, to change the way they think. He said, is it possible... That by doing this, you might embolden the conscience of your brother. Let's break that down. The the conscience. The conscience is that God-given faculty of the soul that serves as a barometer of right and wrong. Each one of you here this morning have a conscience. Because of the effects of the fall, none of us have a perfect conscience. None of us have a perfect conscience. Unbelievers have a darkened conscience with no ability to improve it. But Christians, through the indwelling power of the Spirit and the Word of God, we are to strive, our conscience has been liberated, not perfected, but liberated, and we are to strive to bring our conscience into conformity with the Word of God. It's what Paul means in Romans 12 when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? Through the Word of God, through fellowship with other believers, through um, partaking of the things of God, through being heavenly-minded, through thinking like God thinks, and uh, bringing your, your desires and your affections, your opinions into conformity with what God has said. And as you do that, your conscience is shaped and your conscience is molded. As you grow in the Christian life, there will be some things, notice what I'm about to say, there will be some things that not even when you were an unbeliever, but even as a believer. There's some things that you used to be fine with as a believer 
that you're not fine with now. That's your conscience shaping. There might be some things that earlier on in your Christian life you had an issue with that as you've grown, you've started to see. Actually, God gives me the liberty to partake in this for His glory. That's your conscience being shaped according to the Word of God. But all of us are at different stages in that process. All of us have the liberty of conscience. Baptists have literally died over the issue of liberty of conscience. Because we have rejected the state church that wants to impose particulars upon our conscience and force us to conform to their opinions. We said, no, no. God gives his people the liberty of conscience. All of us have the liberty of conscience, meaning that we won't all come to the same conclusions. It would be a lot easier uh, if we just drafted out a big long list of things that you must do and things you must abstain from and just say, if you want to be a member of this church, here's the list of things to follow, and then we'd all just be the same. If we want to just throw the spirit out of the church and just go on in our own flesh, I guess we could do that. But if we want the spirit here, <laughs> we have to fight against that kind of legalism. We have to defend the liberty of conscience. Because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And where legalism is, there is not the spirit of the Lord. We must never forget that it is the Holy Spirit's job to shape our consciences. Let me take this burden off of you. You are not responsible for shaping the consciences of your brothers and sisters. It's not your job. As your pastor... It is not my job to form your conscience. My job is to preach the word and to tell you what God said and to let him form your conscience. Now we should edify one another with the word. We should encourage one another in the things of God. But we ought to be very careful not to deliberately tempt our brothers and sisters to go against their conscience. In other words, it would not have been a sin for the stronger brothers in Corinth to sit down with the weaker brother and say, let me explain to you from the word of God why I do what I do. There's no sin in doing that. Let me explain to you why I eat the meat from the scriptures. Let me explain to you. There's no sin in that. But it would be sinful to hold that meat in front of them and say, come on, take, take a bite, just take a bite. It's not going to hurt you. Two different things. Two different things. One is godly edification, the other is sinful temptation. Because there's also another principle in this text, and that is, uh, we don't want to fall into the habit of thinking, well, if we have liberty, we, we have to keep it to ourselves, and we have to keep it a secret, and we can't let anybody know about it. That's not liberty either, by the way. Liberty is where, I know you do things I don't do, you know I do things you don't do, I know you abstain from things I partake of, and you know I abstain from things you partake of, and we both have our final authority in the word, it's just that our consciences are in different places, but we love one another, and we accept one another, and it doesn't hinder our fellowship. That is what we should strive for. Well, there's also a word play going on here in verse 10 with the word embolden. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? This, the word for emboldened is the same word used in verse 1 for edify. You see what Paul's doing with the Corinthians? It's as if he's saying, if you use your rights to lead your brother into temptation, oh, you'll build him up all right. You'll build him up to sin. You'll edify him. You'll edify him to sin he will see you doing it and his conscience will be encouraged to join you even though he doesn't have full liberty to do it freely he's torn he's on the fence he's wondering he's, he has a legitimate conflict in his mind is this right or is it wrong or perhaps he's just out and out convinced it is wrong but he sees you doing it and he does it too despite this inner conflict However, the Bible elsewhere says that whatever is not of faith is sin. Meaning, brothers and sisters, if you can't do it with the full assurance that God permits, if you can't do it with the full assurance that God permits it, whatever it is, don't do it. If you are questioning, is God okay with this? I, I really don't know. Don't do it. 
Because you're not doing it in faith. You're doing it with doubt. We need to be clear, though, that the sin of the stronger brother is not merely partaking of the activity in question. The sin is in the emboldening of the weaker brother's conscience. Paul did not say, you are sinning by going to the temple and eating the meat. No, he says you're sinning by emboldening the conscience of the weaker brother. There's more going on than just being seen. If any man see thee, which is what verse 10 says, means more than, oh, they just happen to walk by and glance through the window and see you eating meat sacrificed to idols. And just because they happen to have seen you, now all of a sudden they are emboldened. No. If any man see thee, carries the idea that you are doing this activity openly and fragrantly and purposefully in front of them with no regard to their conscience. You could have easily abstained. You know what you're doing. You know what you're doing, and you're doing it anyways. That's the sin. And it's irrelevant to you uh, whether they think it's a sin. You don't care what they think. You're just going to do it. You are inconsiderate of their conscience. That's what Paul's talking about. So we don't have to always be looking over our shoulder when we do something. We say, well, you know, brother so-and-so in the church, I don't think he would listen to this song on the radio. I better make sure he's not going to hear me listening to it. That's not... That's not the spirit of the text, and that's not the spirit of unity in a church either. If we're always walking around on eggshells around one another. No, it's when we know, we know they, they have a problem with it, and we're going to flaunt it in front of them. Ha, 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 I can do this and you can't. That's the spirit we need to avoid. The passage is not prohibiting the eating of meat sacrificed to idols, nor is it teaching that we have to do such things in secret. It doesn't prohibit it. Why? Because it's not sinful. It's not sinful to eat the meat. So it doesn't prohibit it. But it does prohibit the open flaunting of that liberty that brings temptation upon the brethren. If you have a brother in the church who was saved out of idolatry and you know that he does not have the same liberty as you do to eat the meat, Paul is not saying hide your meat eating from him. He's not saying you have to pretend like you have the same conviction he does. Part of being the weaker brother is also having the maturity and the respect to understand that other Christians have liberties you don't. The weaker brother doesn't get to dictate the conduct of the entire church. But it does mean that when he comes over to your house, you don't grill up a ribeye you bought down at the temple and proceed to tell him how delicious it is. You're considerate of him. Because when he sees that meat, and he sees you eating that meat, and he sees you promoting that meat and encouraging him to partake with you, he's reminded of those former days in idolatry. And your actions embolden his conscience to do something that he believes is sinful. And when you lead your brother into sin, you are guilty as well. Now, none of us have ever been in this specific situation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think any of you have ever had to navigate through partaking meat sacrificed to idols and offending your Christian brother in 21st century America. But we do have situations where the same principle applies, don't we? If you have a brother or sister and the Lord saved them out of alcoholism, do you have to hide your wine bottle up on the top shelf? Do you have to walk around with a teetotal button on your coat? Pretend as if you don't have the liberty to partake? No, you don't have to do that. But when they come over, you don't crack a cold one and tell them how crisp and refreshing it is. And how, you know, now that you're saved out of alcoholism, you have the liberty to partake and come join me. You don't do that. You don't lie about who you are and about where your convictions are, but at the same time, you don't flaunt your liberties. Why? Because for you, it's a gift from the Lord. It's a, it's a symbol of fellowship. It's, it's a liberty that you have. It's not sinful. You, you do it unto the glory of God. But for that brother, he sees it and he sees a, an addiction and a sin that the Lord saved him from. And you don't want to embolden him to return. 
Well, what happens when we don't have that love for our brother? When we do flaunt our liberty? Well, Paul will explore that question in verses 11 and 12. Notice what it says in verse 11. He continues on with his line of questioning. And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Do you realize what you're doing to your brother when you flaunt your liberties like that? Well, no, you don't realize it because you haven't quit thinking about yourself and your rights and what you want to do. Consider what you're doing to your brother. Through your knowledge that is divorced from love, through your selfish pride that cares more about your rights than about your brother, through your abuse of Christian liberty, you are causing your brother to perish. The word perish is synonymous with the term destroy. And it's a reference to eternal perdition. Here's the irony in that question. The Corinthians wanted to build their brother up. The stronger brothers, they they, they argue, well, we have attained a higher level of spirituality. And we want these weaker brothers to come join us. This question implies that when you entice your brother to go against their conscience, you're not building them up, you're destroying them. You're drawing them back into the sins that God saved them from. Christ did not die for them, so some know-it-all, prideful, selfish Christian could tempt them back into the sins He died to save them from. Verse 11 throws a wrench in our theology, doesn't it? Causing a brother to perish? Well, Paul, what about eternal security? What about perseverance of the saints? Don't you know, Paul, you can't lose your salvation? What do you mean, a brother perishing? That's how we reason. We, we say, well, you know, it's impossible for someone who's truly a Christian to lose their salvation. Therefore, there's nothing I could do to cause my brother to perish if he's really saved. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do. But here's the problem with that reasoning. When you reason that way, you're jumping to theological conclusions and you're assuming the meaning of the text instead of honestly asking, what does this text teach? As I read commentaries on 1 Corinthians 8, I read as many commentators would get to verse 11 and before they even begin to to approach what it actually says, they would begin by saying, now we know that this text doesn't doesn't teach that a believer could perish because uh, believers can't lose their salvation, so therefore this text must mean that it just stunts your spiritual growth. Do you see what they're doing with that? They're taking a truth elsewhere and they're imposing it on verse 11 before they even consider verse 11. We have to be honest with God and His Word. We don't get to say, well, I like this verse over here because it really fits my theology, uh, but I don't like this verse because it doesn't fit my theology or I don't understand how it fits my theology. Let the text speak for itself. This text plainly says that when you abuse your Christian liberty, you cause your brother, one for whom Christ died, to perish in their sins and receive condemnation. Okay, that's what it says. Now let's understand what it means. Paul is not teaching in verse 11 that a regenerate believer can lose their salvation. Rather... Paul is speaking of things in the way that they appear. Because this sin is not committed against an unbeliever outside of the church. This is a sin that is committed against a brother. So Paul is saying, for all practical intenses and purposes, this one is a Christian. They are a baptized, church-going, Lord's Supper-partaking, fellowshipping, professing Christian. They might be a false convert, but outwardly, they're a Christian. They're a church member. But this person, when he is emboldened to sin against his conscience, he returns to his life of sin, he apostatizes, and he forsakes the faith. He doesn't lose his salvation. He proves that he was never saved to begin with. Now, why would Paul state it this way? That you are the one who causes that apostasy. Why would he state it that way? He states it that way because of the reality of what's at stake. Apostasy is a very real thing. 
Forsaking the faith is a very real thing. And we should ensure that we never do anything that encourages that. We cannot say, we cannot say, well, perseverance of the saints. If they're really saved, there's nothing I can do to change that. Doesn't matter if I entice them to sin, because if they're really saved, you know what that is? That's hyper-Calvinism in the other direction. Likewise, the Bible doesn't allow us to say, well, the doctrine of election. God's going to save who God's going to save. Doesn't matter what I do. Doesn't matter if I share the gospel with anybody. Nothing we can do about it. This verse teaches us that just like there's means of salvation, and there are means of salvation, there's also means of apostasy. Preaching the gospel, prayer, evangelism, these are means that God uses to bring about salvation. And God says in verse 11, enticing a believer to sin against his conscience is the means that brings about apostasy. And just like the preacher cannot take credit for the salvation, he can't, he can't, say, that, he can't say that I am the one who saved them, so you're not the one who who forced them to apostatize, but the preacher can say, God used my preaching to bring them to himself. Well, when you entice a brother to sin, you become a tool of Satan to bring about the apostasy of your brother. That is a serious thing. That is why Christ, or Paul says, that you cause your brother to perish, one for whom Christ died. And every believer in here, that should strike your heart. That should strike your heart when you read such a verse. Never think, never think, well, I'm saved, I have eternal security, therefore, doesn't matter what sins I get involved with, doesn't matter what wickedness I avail my heart to, doesn't matter what evil I put before me, because I'm saved, I'll always be saved. No, you might, if you have that mindset, you might be a false convert and you might be on the verge of apostasy. And if you can ever get to a place where the sin in your life does not scare your soul, you're in a very dangerous place before God. So Paul identifies this as one for whom Christ died. As if to say, Christ gave up his life for this person and you can't even give up a piece of meat. Christ died to save the weaker brother and it is a great evil to entice him back into the sins that Christ died to save him from. Well, that's the horizontal aspect of this sin in verse 12 or in verse 11. The horizontal aspect, you sin against your brother. But in verse 12, we see that there's also a vertical aspect to this sin. It's not merely a sin against your brother. No sin is merely a sin against your brother. All sin is a sin against God. This one is no exception. Notice verse 12. Paul says, But when ye sin so against the brethren, and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. When you wound your brother's conscience, when you entice it, when you subvert it, when you persuade against it, when you harm it, when you hinder it, when you confuse it, you sin against Christ. Because Christ died for them. And because their conscience is the tool that Christ uses to sanctify them and to cleanse them. When you notice that they're at a different place than you are on a particular issue, you need to get out of the way and let God deal with them. Let Him deal with their heart. Now, if they're, if they're living in sin, yes, you should exhort them with the Word of God, but... If we're talking about one of these gray areas and your brother just has a conviction to abstain from this meat or to abstain from alcoholic beverages or to whatever it is, to abstain from certain things, your job is not to be the spokesman for why they should be participating. Get out of the way and let the Lord deal with them. And maybe He'll give them the liberty someday and maybe He won't. But if you really love them, that's what you'll do. But see, there's this, there's this pride within us. When we see a brother with a conviction more strict than our own, even if he doesn't impose it on anyone, we see he has this conviction, and what do we think? Well, oh, that guy's a weirdo. Why does he live by that conviction? 
And there's something within us that we just want to go and liberate him from this bondage that he's in. It's not bondage to him. He does it and it pleases the Lord and he enjoys doing it. We're not to criticize him and call him a legalist and entice him to change. Let him serve God as his own conscience dictates. Jesus takes this abuse of our brothers very personally. Matthew 18 and verse 6, he says, But whosoever causes one of these little ones, that doesn't just mean children, it means those who are younger in the faith, those who perhaps are the weaker brethren on some issues, whosoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it'd be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Don't be the reason that someone relapses into an addiction. Don't be the reason that someone wounds their conscience and is now guilty before God because you enticed them to do something that they really, in the depth of their heart, didn't want to do. When you sin against your weaker brother, not only do you destroy his conscience, you destroy yourself. You've sinned against Christ. So Paul issues this mature caution in verses 9 through 12. And that's what it is. It's maturity. Immaturity is quick to tell everyone why they should be like you because you've got it all figured out. But maturity in Christ is patient. It's kind. It's long-suffering. It's understanding. That is the mature caution. And fifthly, we see in verse 13, the mandated consequence. We've seen the seriousness of violating the conscience of the weaker brother, and we've seen the imperative to have our Christian liberty guided by love. But how do we practically apply this? What, what principle should we, as we're reading this text, what should we apply to our heart and say, okay, I'm going to, because of this, I'm going to now live this way. That's what all theology is. It's, it's simply the code of conduct for how we should please God. What imperative does 1 Corinthians 8 have on our life? Paul says in verse 13, Wherefore, here's the so what of this passage. Wherefore, because of everything I've just told you, wherefore, Paul says, If meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Notice Paul inserts himself in this scenario. He has not done that yet in chapter 8. But in verse 13, he he inserts himself as our example to follow. It's not just a principle for the Corinthians. This is a principle for all Christians to follow on all matters of Christian liberty and the conscience. Paul himself was a follower of this principle. And he does use hyperbole to stress this important point. He says, if meat causes offense, I will eat no flesh. In other words, if meat sacrificed to idols causes an offense, I won't eat meat at all if that's what it takes to not offend my brother. I will go above and beyond to ensure that I don't offend my brother. And he'll do that while the world standeth. That's forever. If meat sacrificed to idols causes my brother to stumble, Paul says, I will never eat meat again of any kind because I love my brother. And the last thing I would ever want to see is my brother, one for whom Christ died, return to a life of sin and fall away from the faith because of something I did. If they apostatize, they will do so with me pleading on them to remain in Christ. They will not apostatize because of me, Paul says. Yes, Paul is exaggerating his course of action, but he's not exaggerating the principle. He's not saying that you must all become vegetarians for the rest of your life, but the principle is there. Here's the imperative for you to follow. You are morally obligated to abstain from things that are not inherently sinful in instances when your partaking of them would give occasion for your brother to sin. You're obligated to abstain in instances when it would be an occasion for your brother to sin. It's not a command of total abstinence from such things, even though Paul said he's willing to do that. And there's a sense in which you should be willing to do that, whatever it takes to not sin against your brother. 
But this is a command to abstain from things we ordinarily have the liberty to do when doing them would entice the conscience of our brother or sister. The default position of our heart should be to forsake our liberty, to forsake our rights, to forsake our pleasure because we love our brother more than what we're forsaking. That's the principle. If you love your brother more than meat, you'll gladly abstain from meat. If you love your brother more than craft beer, you'll gladly abstain. That's what Paul's trying to get us to understand. Let love be our guide. And by the way, you won't see it as a burden. If love is really your guide, you won't see it as a burden. You won't say, oh, well, I forgot so-and-so's coming tonight, so that means I can't do X, Y, or Z. No, you'll say, there's nothing I'd rather do than abstain in your presence because I love you and I love your fellowship and I respect your conscience. Paul's declaration in verse 13 calls us to examine our heart. It's never just external of Paul. That's why I love Paul. It's never just on the outside. Whatever that external principle is, it's going to go to the heart. Are we willing to say, I will give up whatever it is, I will give it up in order to not place a stumbling block before my brother? If you can't say that, or worse, if if the idea of giving up something you enjoy causes you to say, well, I've got rights. You're revealing a deeper problem within your own heart. The discussion of Christian liberty and knowledge and love requires a whole lot of wisdom. It's, it's a difficult chapter. Really, this whole section in 1 Corinthians is difficult to exegete and preach. There's ditches on every side and These principles could easily be abused to promote legalism on one hand or antinomianism on the other. An antinomian would come in here and would hear me preach this message and would say, well, you're imposing a burden on us to abstain from things we have the right to do. Uh, But then a legalist would come in here and say, you're giving us liberty to do things that we ought not do. (laughs) And that's because we're talking about things that are not sinful in and of themselves, but can be depending on other factors. And part of growing in Christ is understanding that it's not all black and white like we would like it to be. But you will never go wrong loving your brothers and sisters. You'll never do that. Because love is the fulfilling of the law. So you can say, you know, I don't really know if partaking of this is wise right now or abstaining from this is wise right now. But I know I love you, and whatever that leads me to do, that's what I'm going to do. I love my brothers, and I love my sisters, and I love my church, and I love my Christian family that God has placed me in, and I don't want to offend them. That's how we navigate through these gray areas. But as we close, I I do think it might be helpful to take a step back and consider this domain of things that fall into that category, that category of things that are not explicitly commanded, nor that are explicitly condemned. In dealing with this text, MacArthur again provides some helpful practical guidelines for things that may be issues of conscience. So I'm going to just give you six of them as we close today. And like the good preacher he is, he alliterates them so we can easily remember them. So as we think of gray areas, as we think of things where there might be questions or where there might be doubts, here are six things we can ask about it to help determine our course of action. Number one, excess. Excess. Is it necessary or is it only desirable? Is this particular thing necessary for us or is it just something we want to do? Number two, emulation. Does this activity make you more like Christ? Number three, example. Does this activity exemplify the grace of God in our life? Are we doing this from the heart of someone that says, because of God's goodness to me, I'm doing this? Are we setting a good example for our brothers and sisters to follow? Evangelism. Number number four, evangelism. Does this activity aid 
or hinder your Christian testimony? Does it impede your ability to share the gospel with unbelievers? And I think when we consider that, we have to take into account what unbelievers have as conceptions, oftentimes even misconceptions, of Christianity. They have this misconception in their mind that Christians do a certain thing or live a certain way or believe certain things, and you need to be considerate of that as you approach them. Because even if they're wrong about their misconceptions, you don't want to be hindered in evangelizing them because they'll say, well, you can't be a true Christian because you're doing X, Y, or Z. Even if they're wrong. You know, we need to be able to reach them with the gospel first. And then we might be able to say, you know, and by the way, that's a misconception about what Christianity truly is and teaches. But we don't want to kill our testimony before we ever get to open our mouths to share the gospel with them. Fifthly, edification. Does this activity promote growth in Christ and Christian maturity? Does this activity make you a better Christian? And sixthly, exaltation. Is God glorified by this activity? Can God be glorified by eating meat offered to idols? Absolutely. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. And if you can sit down and you can say, I know that idols are nothing and I know that God's actually the one that created this food and gave it to me to lawfully eat and I'm going to eat it and I'm going to praise God for giving me this, this food. But you have to understand there's other believers that aren't there yet. They don't, they don't see it that way. And your job is not to cram that of you down their throat. Your job is to be patient and to be loving and to allow God to reveal the truth to him as he sees fit. May the Lord help us to increase in our love for one another, uh, to grow in our conscience, to develop in these issues. And may he give us true unity at this church uh, so that we love one another more than we love being right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us once again. I thank you for this great epistle to the Corinthians. Father, you've stocked it full with practical lessons for each of us to think about and to comprehend. And Lord... Uh, we must confess that many times we don't think the way that the Bible teaches us to think. We often think of ourselves first and what we would like to do and what we think is right rather than even considering what our brothers and sisters think. And in that we've committed a great evil. Father, I pray that you forgive us of that. Continue to teach us and continue to edify us and instruct us. Encourage our hearts, Lord, that we might be Christians who walk worthy of their calling in the Lord Jesus. Lord, I love you. Thank you. I praise you in Christ's name. For his honor and glory's sake. Amen. Amen.